a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you. Today, we will be talking about some shooting skills, ballistics, and debunking some myths. And for that, uh, I've got a person with quite the exceptional resume. It's John Simpson on the program. So John is a veteran of the U.S. Army with over 40 years of practical experience in sniping and sniper tactics. He's a writer or author on topics such as news and tactics pertaining to security, police, and military. He's an instructor of snipers and their methods for Snipercraft Incorporated, and he's taught both domestically and internationally to groups including police and special forces. John is a research historian and has authored several books on the fundamentals and uh, advanced tactics of marksmanship. And of note, he contributed to the win book for competitive shooters by Linda Miller and Keith Cunningham, both of whom were prior guests on this podcast. So there's a little connection there. <laughs> so welcome, John. Well, uh, glad to be here. So uh, yeah, I, we, we're probably going to have you back on again because you got a lot of stuff to in your history. I mean, you've done decades uh, of shooting, sniper, marksmanship, army. Um, so, but today we're going to be talking about the topics that I kind of mentioned. But sure. maybe we'll start with a little bit on uh, yourself and tell us kind of where you come from and how you got into this craziness. Uh, sure. Um, I was, uh, uh, I, I enlisted in uh, uh, the U.S. Army in uh, 1977 when I was uh, uh, 17 years old. And um, I graduated uh, Special Forces training and uh, earned a, a Green Beret in 1978. Um, kicked around with a, a bunch of stuff. Um, that, that's a whole story in itself uh, to cut to the chase. So um, when I was uh, stationed at uh, Fort Devens, Massachusetts with the 10 Special Forces Group, right down the road in Springfield, Massachusetts was the Smith & Wesson factory. And they used to have a training academy there called the Smith and Wesson Academy. And they had the armors course, but they also had various shooting courses for primarily law enforcement people. And um, without going too down into the weeds, being a special forces weapons guy in the 1980s was like the bottom of the totem pole. Okay. Oh, really? Um <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I I always tell people I was an SF before SF was cool. Okay, um, and the thing is, there was advanced training for medics, advanced training for demo, commo, intel, all of the military occupational specialties. Um, basically, if you were a light weapons guy, which I was, um, you know, you you were the you were the lad who made the tea as uh, they say in the Commonwealth. So uh, basically, um, I, I saw that, hey, there's a shooting school right down there. And um, so I, I took three weeks leave and I paid the tuition myself. And uh, I did 
three weeks of back-to-back training at the Smith and Weston Academy and got certified as a law enforcement firearms instructor. And, uh, I basically never looked back because this was an approach to training that, um, we'd never had in the military. And, um, so I eventually wound up, uh, graduating 14 courses, uh, at Smith the Wesson in various, in various disciplines. And I, I found out I liked it. So now fast forward, um, it's 1985. I'm now stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which I refuse to call anything else. And um, I was assigned as a uh, sniper instructor. And uh, at the, uh, what was then called the Special Operations Target Interdiction Course, or SODIC. And this was essentially the Special Forces Sniper School. And this had opened up a couple years before the Army Sniper School at Fort Benning. So we were, we were like the only source, uh, uh, major source in the army for, for snipers. And it was primarily for special forces. And, um, it originally started out as a four week school. And by the time that I left, it was, um, it was then a six week school. And it was during that time that, um, I'd gone to a, as part of my instructor development, I'd gone to a, uh, uh, a law enforcement sniper course. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these things where you go, wow, I can do better than this. So, uh, eventually I wound up, uh, uh, I hired with, um, one of my former instructors at the Smith and West Academy that started his own training company. And basically when I was at Fort Bragg with the permission of my, uh, my boss, I would, take a week's leave. I would go somewhere in the country and I would put on a five day police sniper school Hmm. and, um, and, and liked it. So, uh, uh, so I, I, I was teaching military snipers from 1985 and I've been teaching law enforcement snipers since 1986. And, um, so during my tenure there, I, it it originally started out, it was a three-year assignment for everybody. Uh, we all got, uh, because of personnel issues, everybody got involuntarily extended for four years. Mm. And while I was down there, I met my wife, got married. And when my youngest son, uh, when my son Jason was born, um, basically because of the due date, I had, I wound up having to extend five years before to a fifth year before I could go to my next assignment in Germany. So my, my three-year tour at, uh, as a SODIC instructor, uh, went to five years. So I, uh, I, I'm probably the only instructor in the, the military, only military instructor in the history of the school that that's been there for five years. And when I started, like I said, I started there at the beginning and then, um, uh, it w- was there with, with all of the changes. And it's like, we were originally using, uh, I, I originally started teaching people with uh, Vietnam era M21s with um, what were called art scopes on it. And just to show you what a small world it is, that's actually the same rifle that Keith Cunningham was using as a sniper in Vietnam. Wow. And they were, the thing is, I, I, I've since checked the records on it. And um, those were, 
I don't know it was specifically his, but the thing is, uh, every scope that we were using at Fort Bragg for uh, of the Art One variety um, had actually been uh, had actually seen service in Vietnam. Wow! So we were, yeah, we were we were using sniper rifles and sniper scopes that that had been in Vietnam, and we were still training people on them. And then when I left. We had the uh, the bolt action uh, Remington M24 with the uh, uh, fixed ten power uh, Leopold and Stevens scope. So it saw a lot of changes. Have you ever actually uh, met Keith in person or Linda? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah okay. uh, Linda. Yeah, they they actually um, uh, after after we've been talking back and forth uh, years ago, they they came down to speak at uh, Sniper Week mm, okay. in Florida. And, um, and I, I, I still have this photograph of where Linda and I are standing side by side. And it's like, you know, she, you know, she, you know, she only, she only like comes up to here and, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, their, their, their talk was very well received, but, um, yeah, they, uh, you know, I honestly can't remember the circumstances of when, um, because they, they contacted me. I think it was because I, uh, because of the stuff I'd been writing for a couple different magazines on um uh on correcting for the wind hmm. that they wanted me to contribute a chapter to the wind book okay and uh yeah so that that's how that wound up in there um so kind of going back a little bit further into your history where are you from originally and originally i'm from uh a little town in uh northern new jersey oh uh it's a, yeah it's a place called uh waldwick so do you have any family that was involved with military or anything that kind of pushed you into this world? Uh, my dad had, uh, uh, he was, uh, he was in the army air Corps in world war II. Um, in fact, you know, just about every, you know, being a, you know, you know, being a boomer, just about every one of my, you know, every close relative had had something to do with world war II. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, um, yeah, other than that, it wasn't, um, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a big military family. I mean, it was just, um, just, it, it was just something that I was, just something that I was drawn to from an early age, mm -hmm. you know, did you have, um, uh, like, did anybody kind of say, uh, we don't want you to do that. We've seen, you know, service and, and seen some stuff happen. No, like my, yeah, no, my, my dad, my dad was all for it. Okay. You know. So now kind of coming back to today, so you, you serve through your career um, and then you get into private sector. Right. Can you talk a bit about like the transition from military into what you're doing now, some of the private stuff? Well, um, it was it was a really bad transition because the thing <laughs> is, the guy, the guy that I, so I, uh, I took, you know, uh, they offered they offered the early retirement to special forces, and I was actually working as a, um, I was actually working as a sniper instructor again, uh, and and the reason for that was is uh, after after Sodic, I went and um, uh, I did a I did a tour in Germany with uh, special forces, and there used to be this um, classified unit called um the commander's in extremist force or the sif and and that's where i wound up going and um i originally started out as uh um 
the the sniper instructor for the uh for the first uh team of snipers that was stood up and um it was uh and the thing and it turned out that it was actually a lot of the police related stuff mm-hmm. that uh I'd been doing on my own so um I uh I I I fit in uh I fit in pretty well there uh so uh did that for did that for three years eventually wound up in a job that's it, it sounds better than it is but it's like it's, uh i was appointed as the company i was appointed as the company master sniper which means that i i was the primary uh sniper advisor to the major that uh commanded the company okay and um yeah so um you know pig uh you know went the whole i went with the unit to desert storm um no sniping you know no no sniping uh took place there and then um so when i came back it was one of these deals where uh i was i was looking at my next assignment and rather than go back to a team i uh i told the sergeant major that you know in all honesty after the 3 years of practical application after being a school teacher, it was like I'd come up with so much new stuff and I'd learned so much stuff mm-hmm. that uh, basically I wanted to pass that on to other people. And 10 Special Forces Group had one of the most robust sniper schools in special operations. And um, I volunteered to go there as an instructor. And then I eventually wound up as the, uh, the um, we had the NCOIC who was overall in charge of the school. And then I, I became, uh, I, I created the position of chief instructor and I was, I was working, uh, basically working behind the scenes to, um, uh, fix the program Okay, because it, it was, it was seriously broken. At that time, were you doing any training with uh like small arms pistols do they do anything with that or is it just strictly on the rifle oh on um uh at the sniper school yeah kind of while you're doing these schools yeah um we had i mean the thing is there was one time when the group commander uh there was a there was like a real world assignment coming down and he's like hey can you put together some uh you know some rifle training for you know for the guys in, in preparation for this hmm. And it was like, well, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, anything to do with anything to do with rifle marksmanship. That's always been that's always been one of the traditional uh, jobs of a like a unit sniper school. They're the they're the go to guys for, you know, not so much small arms training, but you know, for the marksmanship training. Yeah. So yeah, I was just wondering, like, is is it just strictly to go there? Do you go to like a different school then to learn about you know? using a pistol or maybe even different type of weapon system. Oh yeah. 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 Well, we, when I was in, uh, when I, before I went, so when I was in Germany, it's like pretty much as soon as I got there, I had to go back to, uh, I had to go back to the States, back to Fort Bragg, Hmm. which I just left for an eight week school on, uh, which was like, uh, it's like, one of the one of the best schools i'd ever attended civilian or military and Mm -hmm. it was essentially it was the um 
you know, it, it was the special forces door kicking school. <laughs> and, uh, so it was, you can imagine, uh, you know, with a lot of police SWAT programs are like, you know, 40 hours long and, uh, you know, to do this for eight weeks, I mean, we were, you know, we were doing everything, but, you know, getting bullets to shoot around corners. Yeah. I mean, it, and it was like, uh, you know, it, to this day, they still, still the most professional instruction I've ever encountered. There was during the whole time, there was only one time that I felt anxious about, cause it was all live fire training mm -hmm. and it just starts off, you know, so you've got the, the marksmanship portion and then they go into, okay, so they build a, you know, they have a door, they have a door frame on the range and they're like, okay. I'm going to, we're going to start with, uh, you know, Simpson, I'm going to kick this door open. You're going to step inside and you're going to fire two shots at the silhouette target. You see on the other side of the door, kick bang, bang. And then from there, they just keep on stacking more and more stuff onto it mm. till in the end, you're doing multiple building, multiple story takedowns. And, um, and as I said, there was only one time that I felt any kind of anxiety and that was the first time that we were doing a um we were doing a nighttime uh live fire room clearing with aiming lights hmm. and the only apprehension i had was you know not that i'm going to get shot it was just you know your biggest fear was you know you know don't let me shoot anybody else <laughs> and i was like okay the only it's like you know that you know, the, the, the best chance I have of shooting somebody by mistake yes. is going to be this one, but then it's like, you go and you're like, okay, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I wonder, I wonder what all the drama was about. You know, you don't want to be that guy that creates policy Yeah, that they name it after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Um, but so anyway, so getting back to, uh, to your question, um, so I, you know, I retired and it's like, Hey, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to do this full time. And, um, the guy that I was working for, he had this, uh, um, so basically his, his business strategy was, is that I would do work for him, but he didn't have to pay me. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, it, it, it got really bad for a while, you know, and it was, uh, um, so it was one of these deals. It's like, I wound up having to quit him. And, um, I was actually, I went to work for, uh, for a company for a while where I was, I was working as a strike breaker. Uh, but that, that's another story <laughs> itself. Uh, yeah, no, nothing sniper, nothing sniper related there. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, so eventually I, um, uh, you know, I wound up, uh, um, I linked up with, uh, Derek Bartlett at, uh, Snipercraft and started working as an adjunct instructor for him. And, um, so went around, went around the country with, uh, uh, you know, doing police sniper training with Snipercraft. Um, and then once, once people start hearing about you, then, uh, I got to go back to, uh, uh, the Smith and Wesson Academy is an adjunct instructor and, uh, designed, designed the, the five day sniper school for them. And then put that on a couple of times. 
And then... Um, While you're at these places like Smith & Wesson, and uh, you also work for SIG Arms, I think it was? Yes. When you're yeah. there and you're teaching these courses, do they ever come to you and ask you to help develop the next prototype or next firearm or, or what, you know, some input? No. No? No. Oh, you think you would ask those people? <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of times it's like I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not there long enough, uh, you know, because it's like I'm only... As an adjunct instructor, it would probably be different if I was a full-time employee, but being an adjunct instructor, mm. I'm like literally there, except for the time that I spent developing the course, I'm like literally there for just the five days. Oh, okay. I see. So you drop in, you parachute in, you exactly. do the course, you're yeah. out. Okay. Oh, and with sniper craft, so is, is their main focus uh, with police training or do they do pretty much anybody? It's all, it's, yeah, it's only with, but the, the thing is, the thing I like about sniper craft is, and you know, I, I hope this doesn't tick off too many civilians. It's like sniper craft training is only available to primarily police mm. and, um, you know, basically military, um, very rarely security, but, uh, um, you know, you, you have to be, a you know, active duty and sworn either police or military in order to get trained by sniper craft or to get a hold of their um uh publications okay um and one of the things uh maybe this gets into a little bit of the myth busting around some of the the firearm stuff yeah but could we talk a little bit about the the type of rounds used and some of the ballistics uh we don't have to get into like the wound right uh stuff but just why we use the type of rounds we use. Um, and even if you can offer a piece on why we use nine millimeter uh, in pistols as opposed to anything else. But I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to what, what the government happens to be using. Hmm. So we, you know, the, uh, the NATO standard is the seven, six, two, um, seven, six, two NATO, which is actually uh seven, six, two by 51 millimeter and uh is kind of equivalent to the 0.308 winchester mm -hmm. which is a civilian loading and basically all that is is just a uh um it's a it's a product improved version of the old uh uh 30-06 round from 1906 mm -hmm. and um where the 7.62 came from is uh the We've had the 30 odd six for 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 decades and um it was actually um it was actually through um uh research that everybody was good you know the ordinance engineers were going uh well you know something like a, a a 276 you know would have you know better performance and they can carry more bullets and all this stuff and just to give you an idea of how long ago this was Major General, two-star General Douglas MacArthur was the chief of staff of the Army. Wow. And um, basically, the ordnance engineers came to him and said, hey, you know, for this next rifle, um, you know, we, we'd like to do it in this caliber, and here's the research that goes with it. And apparently, uh, the story goes that, you know, MacArthur was sitting there and said, well, gentlemen, I really appreciate your research, but um, the next rifle is going to be in 30-06. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's, uh, and, you know, so, um, that's why, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the M1 Garand, mm -hmm. but, uh, a lot of people ask, well, you know, 
why, you know, with the eight round clip, why did they settle on eight rounds? And the thing is, it's like, well, in the original caliber, it was going to be in, you yeah. could fit 10, you could fit 10 rounds into that clip. And when they basically, uh, upsized everything to accommodate the 30 odd six, that's why it became an eight round clip. Wow. Because you, because you only put that many bullets in the same zip in the same space. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then the thing is, it's like the reason why we, why we had the 30 odd six in the first place, you know, you got to understand there's always been this target shooter mentality when it comes to this stuff that has never, ever translated to the actual battlefield. So if you look at the, uh, the original site for the M1903 Springfield rifle, the one that you like raise, uh, you know, the, the one that hinges upward, yeah. you know, the, the, the tangent site, the most people remember that the, the very top notch, you know, cause the thing is you slide the scale and it goes up to like, you know, you know, 24, you know, 25, you know, 2,600 yards. Mm. And most people don't realize that the very top notch on that was if you put the front sight in that aiming notch, that was supposed to be your 2,800 yard zero. Jeez. And people look at that nowadays and they're like, and cause uh, you know, you want to talk about, you know, what a research historian does and this is kind of it. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. Uh, the top notch on the, on the, on the M1903 was a 2,800 yard zero, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you know, Alvin York was standing there in the standing offhand position, you know, dropping people effortlessly from 200, 2,800 yards away with iron. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, that was for something called collective fire because mm. in the days before effective belt-fed machine guns, what infantry units used to do with their bolt guns was, is, um, and uh, you, you used to see a lot of this in uh, the British and the Canadian military, which is actually where we, we kind of learned it from. Uh, so imagine you've got a, a rifle company, and uh, there's three platoons. And uh, so a, a fire problem comes up. And it's like, hey, you know, you've got, you know, you've, you've got this enemy formation a bazillion yards away. So the thing is, it's like one of the jobs uh, um, in, in, in a rifle company, there's a, you know, the senior NCO is the first sergeant and, you know, he does, you know, paperwork and assigns details and stuff like that. One of the early, one of the early jobs of a, of an army first sergeant was he would manage all the range estimators in a rifle company. Mm, so, okay. yeah. So the thing is, it's like, uh, you know, Hey, you know, Nathan, what do you, how far away do you think they are? You know? And it's like, well, you know, I'd say 1200 yards and I'm going, well, you know, I, I think they're like a thousand yards. Well, so all these range estimators, they would report their estimations to the first sergeant. His job was to like average it together, report it to the company commander. And then the company commander would go, okay, so based off of that, and because of the training that I've had, all right, first platoon, you're going to set your sights for a thousand yards. Second platoon, you're going to set your sights for 900 yards. And third platoon, you're going to set your sights for 1100 yards. And we're all going to aim at the same thing. 
And then when we volley fire our bolt gun, essentially a company of bolt guns is basically producing the same effect as a belt-fed machine gun does today. Jeez. I'm kind of picturing like uh, you see in the movies when they, you know, they'll have one side and they shoot all the arrows. And there's just a thousand yeah, exactly. arrows coming yeah, three, over at you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, yeah, the 300 Spartans with the yes. arrows. That, yeah, that was that's what it used to be with volley fire. It was called it was called huh. collective fire, and it was one of the things that infantry infantrymen trained in. Wow. That's... So, um, so the thing is, it's like you can see that you know the the bullets that the military would go for would be well, hey, we got to have this capability to you know to shoot people at, you know you know thousand you know thousands of yards away. And, um, and then the thing is, it's like in the, in the 1950s analysis was actually done based off of world war two in Korea. And that's when people started to realize that, well, you know, uh, when people are doing what I call soldiers doing soldierly things, mm. you really can't, you know, it's really difficult to shoot people at that distance. And, um, you know, teaching, you know, you know, you know, teaching, uh, you know, young Joe in the first infantry division, how to read the wind, especially when it's, you know, six months later at three o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. is problematic. So they were like, you know, um, instead of this whole seven, six, two thing, you know, uh, you know, the, this this whole five five six or two twenty three Remington, which isn't the same bullet, uh, is actually um, you know actually answers the mail, mm -hmm. and uh, so that's now as far as as far as the current bullets coming in, um, you know what I I like stick all my you know I um, I, I uh, you know I. I put my stake in the ground with the with the uh, with the 308 Winchester and the and the 223, and in fact, most of the um, uh, with the with sniper craft, it's like our our recommendation is is that you know people stick to uh, 308 Winchester. Yeah, uh, it's a very it's a very mature round. There's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of different bullets that are available for it. Because um, you know, because speaking of ballistics. One of the one of the things that we found over the years is that um, you know a bullet that's very good for uh, dropping people uh, just isn't as effective as shooting somebody through a pane of glass and then dropping them. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, so one of the things that we push for is, hey, you know. Find yourself a good anti-personnel round, uh, you know, you know what we call the open air round, and then you know have a barrier penetration round. Yeah, I, I've heard about that. Like, so one of the things I think a lot of people or the public don't really realize is there's a lot that goes into researching this stuff and making sure you have a round that, uh, like, can hit your target, especially for police, hits your target, but doesn't go through the next six people right. or through the brick wall behind them. And you're like, oh, that was a little overpowered. <laughs> so just the amount that goes into it. Uh, and then also, do you ever get questions like, you know, um, or maybe you just hear it in general, but people go, why didn't they just shoot the gun out of the person's hand? Why didn't they just shoot? Why didn't yeah. they just kneecap him when he's in mid 
uh, full sprint. Like, right. So how do you kind of answer those? Yeah. I mean, that, and that's, that's actually one of the things that we've had to address. Mm. And, um, uh, I've, I've actually written an article uh, regarding the uh, the shooting to wound thing uh, because we have a um, uh, we have a uh, police chief here in Georgia that believes he's qualifying his people to be able to shoot to wound, and um, really? it's a very 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 bad idea. Yeah. Um, uh, but basically, it, it's interesting you ask about the shooting the weapons because basically, although it's been although it's been done. Um, the first, you know, the, the whole story never actually makes it into press. So, um, the other thing, the other organization that Derek Bartlett is associated with is, uh, while he's the, he's the owner and director of Snipercraft, he's also the president of what's called the American Sniper Association. Hmm. And if anybody is a police sniper, uh, they need to join the American Sniper Association. Okay. Because um, one of the things that they do is, um, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not affiliated with the ASA. Um, I, I help out with some of the, the statistical work on it, but it's, uh, it's all run by, it's all run by cops, and um, so one of the projects that they did. And, um, if you want, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link years ago. They, when this whole thing about, Hey, you know, shooting guns out of bad guys, hands and all this stuff, what they did was, is, uh, they went down to the evidence locker, got a bunch of, um, you know, guns that were, you know, getting ready to be destroyed mm-hmm. and they took them out to the range and they built a fixture. And they loaded the guns up and they shot them. And they uh, basically they created a uh, DVD that's um, uh, available from the ASA uh, for for uh, legitimate law enforcement. Okay. And uh, yeah, so the so basically, long story short, the conclusion is: don't do this. Don't brief. You can do this. Don't train to do this. So I'm guessing the DVD is just a ton of misses. Even with people who are highly trained. No, well, no. I mean, that, assuming you can hit it, the DVD is like this is what happens when you fire a bullet at a fully loaded handgun mm, okay. or shot or shotgun, and basically it's like uh, what they what people fail to tell you is is that there's a sympathetic detonation that often happens, mm-hmm. and um, you know this idea that you know there's a you know, there, there's this magic sweet spot that you can, you know, shoot the gun out of the guy's hand because, uh, without getting too much into the legal aspects of it, mm-hmm. um, essentially if, if you're not justified in using deadly force to resolve a situation, then you're, you're basically sending deadly force that person's way. Yeah. When you think it's, you know, when you feel that you're not justified in killing them. Yep. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. You know. And it's the same it's the same thing with shooting the wound. I look uh, in the article I looked at it from the uh I looked at it from the point of view of uh the wound ballistics. And that was um that's because I don't know if you ever heard of um 
the leading expert in wound ballistics, uh, the late Dr. Martin Fackler. No. Yeah, see, and and it's not just you. It's like if you've ever if you've ever heard about shooting, you know, testing uh, ammunition by shooting it into a twenty percent gelatin block. Yep. Marty Marty Fackler is the guy that came up with that. Okay. Because because prior to that, people were using clay and uh, you know you know wet paper uh, wet phone books. <laughs> and, and and everything else and the thing is it was just like um without getting too down into the weeds into it it was like the biggest problem with all of that stuff is people were overly impressed by the temporary wound cavity mm-hmm. and what marty had found out was is that you know you fire a uh an ar-15 into something and there's this oh wow you know look at that you know look at that you know, that, that temporary wound cat, you know, look at that ballooning. It's like, how can anybody survive that? You know? Mm-hmm. And the thing is he's going, you know, human tissue is a lot more elastic than people give it credit for. And what really counts is the permanent wound cavity and how deep that can go. Mm. And, um, because the thing is, it's like, uh, he, I mean, he's, I mean, he, he's done articles like, um, uh, you know what's wrong with the wound ballistics literature and everything else and he he was the uh, he was the founder and first co- he was the first commander of uh the army wound ballistics laboratory uh out in california when he came back from vietnam when he was a colonel okay <laughs> yeah so the thing is he he came by his expertise because um he was a military surgeon in vietnam and he was one of the few guys that would work on uh north vietnamese and vc pow's mm. treating their gunshot wounds so he actually got to look at gunshot wounds that had been inflicted by ak's and by m16s okay and that's when he realized that uh and one of the reasons why he and i got along so well together uh he realized that what he'd been taught about wound ballistics as part of his surgical residency was wrong Hmm. And that's when he started researching it to find out, okay, you know, how does wound ballistics work? So yeah, Martin, Martin Fackler, uh, you can find a lot of his stuff online. Um, uh, it, 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 it's bittersweet because his last public appearance was in 2014 at sniper week in Florida. And it was my it it was an honor for me to introduce him. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look up some of those people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I I mean, the thing is, it's like I I've been extremely fortunate in the the people that I've gotten to meet over the year. You know, I've gotten to become friends with over the years. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, you know, if if I'm able to advance, it, it, it it's like the it's like the old saying of standing on the shoulders of giants. So you know those all of those people um you know some of you may have heard of some of you haven't i mean you know there's marty fackler for wound ballistics there was rex applegate for uh uh field craft a lot of people know him from the the whole point shooting thing mm-hmm. um but at, at one time he was he was with the oss in world war ii and um there was a brief period of time when he actually served as fdr's bodyguard uh 
because he was up in the area that uh, eventually, uh, the area that eventually became Camp David, the presidential retreat here. Yeah, uh, used to be a. Uh, uh, used to be in the vicinity of an OSS training camp. Oh, okay. Well, the the history that you you know most people might not know about some of these areas. So, in talking about like the two two three round five five six, that's what we use in like a patrol carbine out on the street. Um, I think that's pretty standard North America and Canadian. Like everybody uses right. that round. Can you just talk a little bit about that specific round and like why police might use it? Um. Uh, because it does it, it does the job. Um, see, I, I've got a uh, the next book. The next book I have coming out from Blue Three Sixty Media is going to be um, uh, Foundations of Patrol Rifle Marksmanship, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, you know, basically, it's like the people like the two two three because it works and. Uh, the uh, what I found is that um, a lot of people don't know why they why they want something other than the fact that it's not what they currently have. Mm. You know? So um, the new shiny thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I mean, you know, um, you you see it. You know, you you see it with with the military. It's like all oh, now. Uh, well, you know, now you know now we gotta have you know this the six point five Creedmoor does this or you know this. You know, this 6.8 SPC does this and, and everything else. and it, But that's where you get into the difference between target shooting and dealing with people, right? Like it's one round is developed for certain type of performance. The other one is for other types of performance. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, it's just like, I mean, look, I mean, the 223 Remington works. And, you know, after a while, I mean, it's just, you know, there, there's only there's only so many ways that you can shoot somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it until you're like doing change for the sake of change. Yeah, well, yeah, and kind of what I was maybe looking for a bit was on, you know, like what happens when a round hits a person. So the two two three, I guess, developed from my understanding. I'm not an uh, expert by any means, but is I guess when it hits a person. It's, uh, what do I call it? The penetration of it is like 10 to 12 inches where it won't go through them. Hopefully that's kind of the goal is like, it stops in that person. I, I, I mean, a, a lot of it, a lot of it depends on the, a lot of it depends on the, um, the configuration of the bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the two brands that were right off the top of my head, the two brands that, uh, the two go-to brands that I recommend to people is um uh get the tactical ammo from either uh hornady mm-hmm. or uh black hills ammunition okay and i mentioned i uh in my current um in, in my current book foundations of sniper marksmanship i also i also mentioned both of them uh as uh, as the go-to ammunition manufacturer yeah and just because of the performance of it, like what it's supposed to do, it yeah, does it, it right? See, for years, so for years and years, yeah. So for you know, talking about police sniping, for years and years, people were using this 168 grain boat tail hollow point match round, but they didn't know why. Okay. Mm-hmm. They just thought it was like some vague, you know, best of. And um 
but when you started looking at the shootings over the over the decades it was a case of um you know that hollow point on there that's actually that's not a wounding hollow point and this is one of the things that marty fackler found out is that uh that hollow point is actually an artifact of the manufacturing process oh so when you make yeah so when you make full metal jacket ammunition normally you've got a lead core the lead core is shaped and then they take the copper jacket and they draw it over the lead core going from the nose to the tail and that creates a, a solid point and the lead base is exposed well the thing is for aerodynamics and this is kind of counterintuitive the the base is actually more critical than the nose okay you can uh and people have done this in experiments you can actually file an angle on the nose of your rifle bullet and it won't change the uh it won't open up the group size oh really but if <laughs> you if you do anything to the base of the bullet uh, you'll wind up it, it'll wind up spinning into a larger group so that's why match ammunition has a lead core but is drawn from the base to the nose so that way the back of a match bullet is just a smooth flat piece of copper hmm. and it's the nose that where they draw the jacket closed because it doesn't matter so um the thing is when hitting a when hitting a person the hole in that tip is just as likely to actually close up when it hits somebody and that's why the um you know for law enforcement use the 168 grain has been proven to over penetrate okay and so for year so for years now sniper craft has been telling people you know your go-to bullet should be the hornaday tap round and they they even make one in 168 but it comes in uh 168 155 and 110 which they call tap urban hmm. and um the thing is it's like it uh there's pretty sure there's no documented case just going off my memory mm -hmm. of a uh, of a tap round over penetrating uh when it when it hits a human being okay yeah we get a lot of like i think most of our um statistics and things that the police service bases a lot of their their decisions off of come from american forces like especially the fbi they seem to do a ton of tests on everything so i think a lot of our stuff is based off of uh american data right we don't really have the budget or we just maybe they all figure uh they're doing it we'll just take their study they spend the money <laughs> right um one thing i want to make sure we get to was uh some of the stuff you've done on flash recognition yes i want to make sure we get some time in to talk about this so sure i thought this was uh a very interesting topic because because of where it developed so if you could kind of run us through some of the history of it sure and then what you managed to uh, change this into for sniping or police training yeah and i i had some ideas of how this might actually apply just honestly to everyday policing it's probably an important skill that right i don't know if they'd have the budget to teach it or what it, it would entail but it actually is a very uh i think it'd be a very useful program okay um well, before I begin, let me just say I do a uh, three-day flash recognition instructor course under contract. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't hold it regularly. Uh, so, 
Derek uh, Derek Bartlett uh, with Snipercraft does a tactical ob observer class, and um, it's a, it's an eight hour class. Uh, it's advertised on the website, and um, uh, basically associating with me, uh, he at the very at the very end he starts to talk about flash recognition because the the question always comes up you ask a cop are you a trained observer and they're like well yes of course i am and then you go <laughs> okay so what observation training have you had then all of a sudden it's like they're not quite as articulate okay because <laughs> it's like well gee nobody ever asked that question before yeah. okay which you'll find out that yeah the, long, the longer you hang out with me it's like I'm the guy that asked a question that nobody did before. So, mm -hmm. um, the whole story, once upon a time, there was this magazine called Police Marksman. Now, being this whacked out soldier who was into like cop stuff, as everybody as everybody used to say, um, I was uh I was a subscriber to Police Marksman. So I'm I'm reading this issue and it, uh, you know, I'm reading this issue at Fort Bragg and it was just like, um, there was an article about that, that was called, you can learn to see better. Hmm. And, um, you know, we, we teach observation at, you know, at the sniper school and it, uh, basically told about, uh, the Indiana state police Academy under major Dale Van Adder had uh revived this world war ii training program called flash recognition and they had a an actual school trained navy flash recognition former navy flash recognition officer named <coughs> robin soul and he'd come in and they'd uh created this uh they'd integrated flash recognition training into the police academy um, they had, uh, they had professor souls home address in the article and mm. I wrote to him and, uh, uh, we got to, we got to know each other very well over the years. And he put me in touch with major van Adder. And, um, so the, the story goes that, uh, back in world war two, we were having at the beginning of world war ii we were having a lot of uh friendly fire incidents where we were shooting down our own planes and the navy wanted to put a stop to that so there was a uh there was a cut there was a naval officer who had been a student at ohio state university of a psychology professor named samuel renshaw and he goes you know, hey, Professor Renshaw, you know, I know you've been working in this area. Can you put together a program for us? Mm. So now, why did he go to Renshaw? This is my favorite part of the program because I like to tell people flash recognition all started with a man named Savo Finkelstein. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in the early 1930s, a Polish national calling himself Dr. Finkelstein emigrated to the u.s and uh he was trying to seek his fortune at what was called a lightning calculator so uh he had a uh he had an act where he would stand up on stage and draw a five by five grid 
He would then have members of the audience call out random numbers and he would fill them in. Mm -hmm. He would immediately turn his back and then recite the numbers top to bottom, left to right, right to left, or diagonally. And then he would like add them together with his back turned from memory in any combination that you wanted. So it's like, you know, hey, Dr. Finkelstein, third row from the top. What does it add up to? Mm-hmm. And he would he would do it. And his actual his stated goal, um, he wanted a job where he would like uh, work once a week, like doing accounting for a bank. Um, as a publicity stunt, he was hired by CBS News for the 1932 presidential campaign, where uh, on the rate, and I I'm still trying to find the radio, you know, mm-hmm. see if there's, this is in the, anybody's radio archives. So what they did was, is, um, you know, keep in mind, results are coming in across the country by telegraph key in Morse code. Okay. Yeah. And you have people that are like, okay, um, you know, this district came in and everything like that. So anyway, uh, they'd hire as a stunt, they hired Salo Finkelstein to like, single-handedly total up all the national results for their uh for their november broadcast for election night okay and uh, i mean it actually made the newspapers hmm. uh, so he became he became this uh really curious fellow that various psychology departments across the united states were like hey let's Let's put this guy under the microscope, see what happens. Yeah, yeah. So in 1934, he winds up in Ohio State University in Professor Renshaw's lab. And uh, Professor Renshaw had developed this machine called the um, uh, the chronoscope. And it consisted of a timer. So it was a a shutter and it was a uh, electric timer. And, um, so you, you press a button, a shutter raises and a stimulus, you know, whatever, whatever you want the person to look at would be visible. And then when they were done looking at it, they would like hit a button. They would hit a button themselves. The shutter would close and the time would be recorded. And then they had to write down what they saw under the shutter. Okay. All right. So basically, so after he'd memorized the stimulus, he would press it and then it would report what the time was. So something interesting happened when he started testing Finkelstein with that. And it's uh, when he arrived, he needed 17 and a half seconds to memorize the five by five grid that I told you about before. Mm -hmm. Over the course of testing, he got down to nine seconds. He initially needed 9.23 seconds to memorize a 21-digit number. So this is like, yeah. That still sounds pretty good, though. I don't know if I could even do that. 21, yeah, 21, (laughs) yeah. Well, I mean, just to just to just to learn 21 different, you know, 21 digits. Yeah, you know, um, it because it'd be one thing if it was like, yeah, you know, one through nine repeated, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) repeated. Yeah, it's like these were all 21 random digits. So. 9.23 9.23 seconds to memorize a 21-digit number. And then this was, re- 
Over the course of testing, which became training, this time was reduced during training to 7.18, 5.46, 4.9, 4.43, finally down to 3.17 seconds Mm -hmm. for a 21 number. So he was obviously getting better with practice during testing, so that got Renshaw into thinking, if the testing method was working his training, what happens if he puts one of his students through this training? Yeah. So he, he wanted to find out what the upper limit of developing this ability. And, you know, I go into the, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I go into the whole thing with, um, uh, you know, with, with the course. But the thing is, he eventually had a student that could memorize a 21 digit number faster than Finkelstein. Yeah. I mean, he, he beat his time. And so this kind of gets into like recognizing though, uh, cause you're using a shutter. So you have to take a snapshot, like in your mind, right. you're recognizing okay. the whole so, thing. Right. So now a little exposition. So that that's the beginning of the history of flag recognition. Now, mm-hmm. what it is you're actually doing. Um, the thing is your, your eyes don't function as television cameras. Okay. What you're doing is, is you're actually assembling the, uh, um, you know, whatever is the, whatever it is that you see, it's just that your visual center has evolved so that this is a seamless operation. Okay. Basically what happens being a, being an English speaker or, you know, having learned to read in English, you, you know, you read from left to right. Mm-hmm. So if I had, let's just, let's just say I had a seven digit number. Okay. And for simplicity's sake and ease of memorization, we'll just say it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now you read that number and it's like, yeah, okay. You know, you, you put it together from left to right. Mm -hmm. But now let me just interpose a mechanical shutter in between you and that number. So let's say I have a, it's a slide, you know, it's a slide on a digital projector, you know, PowerPoint slide. And now that number doesn't appear except when I open the shutter at one one hundredth of a second. And then it closes. If you try doing it the way you you're you're normally conditioned to do it, you'll go one, two, three, and then the shutter's closed. Mm-hmm. What flash recognition trains you to do. So basically, just like a physical activity, flash recognition actually rewires the visual center of your brain by demanding that you do more than you're used to doing. Mm-hmm. So that eventually you reach a point where the number comes up you don't go one two three and assemble it in your head you just go bang you get that image and the shutter closes but you've got yeah it's one two three four five six seven so one of the examples that you gave on here too was uh like looking at somebody's face and you don't look at a face from left to right and then you don't go like Right. The eyes, then the nose. You basically just look at it, and then you recognize that person, right, or, or whatever you're looking for. Right. I was thinking this too. 
when it comes to like police work, a lot of surveillance work, um, some of the stuff we do, like with our team, we walk through a lot of the venues, so bars and casinos and stuff. And you just, you catch glimpses of people. Uh, and then even from like certain glimpse, you can just see the, the, the stature of a person or maybe you catch the face. And you're like, yeah, I know who that is. Like within a split second, you know exactly who you're looking at. And I was thinking of a way, because this sometimes comes up in court even, and they'll go like, well, how do you recognize a person? It's like, I just know, I don't know how to explain it, but like I've seen them before. I just recognize it. As soon as I saw this person, I can tell by the face or the stature or the silhouette, like right. you can tell that. So it, it got me thinking like that, that must be kind of related to this training or this type of stuff. Yeah. Um, so basically the way that Renshaw used to, he used to use that very example where he was just like, okay, you're walking down the street and you see your aunt Mary. Mm. Now, uh, getting back to world war II, the system that we had at the time was, um, uh, for teaching aircraft recognition was called, it was an acronym called WEFT, mm. uh, EFT, which stood for wings, engine, fuselage, and tail. And uh, basically for training, you would learn, okay, so, uh, you know, whether the wing is, you know, high or low or midway, or it's this shape or, you know, the engine is, you know, looks like this in the front mm -hmm. or and the, and the tail is shaped like this. And the fuselage, you know, is, you know, squared off or it's bulbous or, you know, shaped like this. And, um, the thing is the GIs that were using that at the time uh basically came up with their own version of what weft stood for mm -hmm. and for them it was like you know the sanitized version is you know wrong every freaking time mm -hmm. and um so when uh the way that renshaw addressed that is he would go hey look i mean when you see your aunt mary walking towards you on the sidewalk you don't go okay um, yeah, so the, you know, the forehead's right and the nose is like this and, you know, the eyes are shaped like this, and, Yeah, you know, the chin like this. Oh, that's Aunt Mary. It's like, no, you look at that face and that face is, oh, that's Aunt Mary. Yeah. Okay. And that's what he told. And that's what he called total form. Mm. So the example I used before with the seven digit number, you're, it's the difference between assembling pieces of whatever it is. And then being forced to use total form. Okay. So that you're seeing, yeah. So you're not seeing the parts of Aunt Mary's face. You see Aunt Mary's face and know that's Aunt Mary. Well, yeah, it's like obviously. But the thing is, when you're looking at a license plate, you do, you know, yeah, you can go, uh, yeah, it's uh, HFA 404. Mm hmm you know, assembling it, or you can just go, Hey, that's the light, you know, that license plate, uh, you know, turns out that's the one that we have a bolo on. That's actually a good example. I'm going to use that. <laughs> it, well, that, well, it, it, and the thing is, it, it's, it's not mine. That's actually from Indiana because, uh, Van Adder was so proud of this program and he actually did research on, um, on the results. So, um, he, the original intent of the program was to improve performance and shoot, no shoot exercises. Mm -hmm. So he had an original test group of 21 students out of a class of 74. 
and they achieved a 23% better average score in decision-making exercises than the control group that hadn't received flash recognition. Oh. Um, and then uh, he documents the results of, um, uh, uh, of a class from 1989. And uh, it was like, uh, so reading numbers at one one-hundredth of a second uh, class average went from 42.2 to 57.4. Reading words under the same conditions went from 32 to 80 percent. And seeing seeing and retaining license plates at one one hundredth of a second went from a class average of 32 percent to 85 percent. Wow. And then once these then once these guys hit the street, they started. They had a uh, they actually had a decrease in vehicular accidents and they had an increase in on site arrests. Oh really? Okay. I think it's good too for people to just to know uh, how your brain's working when you're out there, because I think a lot of people don't really. If you were to ask them, like, well, how did you how did you recognize this person? They wouldn't think of a way to articulate that. Yeah. Um, but you know, you read from left to right. But when you look at a face, how come I can just look at a face and know who the person is? I don't have to do the individual parts. The license plate thing is actually really useful too. They almost need to put this in uh, recruit training to some extent. Oh yeah, I mean that's, uh, but but that's one of the. Well, the thing is, I mean, if you want your mind blown, go to Derek's tactical vision class and go to my uh, flash wrecking instructor class because mm-hmm. we like cover all of the nuts and bolts about why you see things the way that you do. Because if you don't understand that, see the difference. There's a difference between training and education that most people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it's. Like, if you were to ask most people, what's the, what, what's the difference between training and education? Maybe the application. See, um, training is actually a, it, it's a system of, all right, now, Nathan, when A happens, you do B, mm-hmm. okay? And then if C happens, you do D, all right? So that's for an anticipated situation. Education is where you understand how something works and why it's done that certain way so that when you run into an unexpected situation, you can go, you know what, this is what I need to do. Okay. So, you know, training, training is good. Okay. I'm not bad mouthing training, but the thing is education of us on a subject is what helps you with uh, dealing with a chaotic situation or something that you haven't been trained to react to. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so the thing is the, what, what Derek and I emphasize in the observer training is, is understanding, you know, sharing what we currently understand about the visual center of, um, uh, of the human brain, Mm. because, and and it's one of these things where i mean i I, i've seen people just like you know mind blown with with (laughs) some of the stuff um you know unfortunately it's like you know it's all visual i can't uh you know there there isn't too much that i get that i can talk you through but um to to give you to give you one exact the one one experiment that you and your listeners can do and I'm going to try and get, I'm going to try and get this right. <laughs> so the thing is you have the, so 
your your visual center in relation to your eye is just this very tiny spot on the back of your eyeball okay and that's where that that's where your clearest vision is and in order for you to see something that is constantly scanning all over what you're looking at mm -hmm. and th these are what's good and uh, the the uh these are called saccades okay and the so the thing is it's like you're you you look at a spot and then you look at another spot and you look at it and your brain is set up to accommodate this and it creates this image in your visual center that what you're seeing is this flicker free image of you know like right now it's you know it's me on your computer monitor mm -hmm. but that's a lie okay because the thing is if if you were actually able to see your eye scanning all over something you would get dizzy mm -hmm. so the thing is you are functionally blind in between where the spot where the last spot is and the next spot is seen so your visual your visual center shuts down in the brief period of time that it takes to scan that image together and you can see this you can see this for yourself mm. with the aid of a mirror okay so what you do is uh you you stand close to a mirror and with both eyes open you look at your you know, you look at your left eye in the mirror. Okay. And then with your eyes open, quickly look over to see your right eye in the mirror. And what you're going to see is, is first you're going to see your, see your, your eye staring back at you. And then you're going to see your other eye staring back at you, but you won't see, you won't see your eyes move. Mm-hmm. You can't see your eyes move in the mirror when you flick them back and forth, looking at your eye, at each opposite eye. Yeah. You need a mirror to do. Yeah. But now, if you had so, if you watched somebody else doing that, you would see the eyes move back and forth. Hmm. I gotta go test this on the kids. <laughs> um. Now, if you could, uh, if you could spare me a couple of minutes, I would like to talk a bit about the book about uh, why it was written. Yeah, and so that was one thing I wanted to get into too. So, I, and I was going to add, uh, I was reading the book that you sent ahead of time, and yep. I was using that just prior to my carbine recertification. So it it helped me kind of get back into the the mental state of things, remembering some of the techniques. Like I'm literally sitting there shooting from the standing, the kneeling, the prone, and going like, okay, I got to make sure I'm stacking bones and make sure I'm you know, breathing, trying to focus on things. So if you could tell us like just how you got into the authoring yes. of this. Yeah. So, so basically it was in connection with sniper craft and that's why on the cover, it says based on sniper craft mm -hmm. principles, I was, um, I was teaching a class with Derek and, uh, there was only the two of us for the entire class. And we had, uh, two teams, uh, on opposite ends of the range and they were both doing the same thing and they were holding the rifle with they had the small of the stock and they were holding 
the pistol grip like the rifle was a pistol because they had absolutely no experience with shooting a rifle. Okay. And I was able to work with one team, but I couldn't work as much with the other one. And one team passed and the other one didn't. Mm. So I realized that's when I realized that there's a, there's actually a, a paradox with police snipers. So, and I mentioned this in the book, when you're a military sniper, you've been through basic rifle marksmanship Mm -hmm. in basic training where you learned how to use iron sights with an M16 out to 300 meters and qualified at that distance. Then you go to a six or eight or 12 week long sniper school where you, you know, learn that, you know, you spend weeks learning how to shoot farther and farther out. Yeah. But then you look at police snipers, a police, you know, a, a policeman, when he graduates the academy, he's only guaranteed to be qualified on a handgun. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, depending on jurisdiction, maybe, you know, qualified or just familiarized on a shotgun. Yeah. Or so the thing is, it's like, then they show up. Their sniper school is only five days long. Wow. And they also, and they also, yeah. <laughs> see, when you think about it that way, it's just like, Boy, that doesn't make sense because then you have to cover, you know, tactical movement and concealment and observation Mm -hmm. and everything else in addition to shooting. So what I wanted to do was, is I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, basically bend that curve to where, okay, here's a book that a supervisor can give to somebody before they go to sniper school and go here, you know read this or you know let's say there's uh one opening on the SWAT team for a sniper and you've got three candidates for the job mm-hmm. and a team leader but you know team leader pulls three copies of this book out of his desk hands them out to each guy and says okay here go ahead and read this on your own work on the dry fire let me know if you have any questions uh a month from now uh, you come on out with us to the range when we're doing our train up and, uh, we'll do, you know, we'll do the live fire mm-hmm. and then you see how they do, uh, when they, when they, when they do it with live fire. So now you've just found out who really wants the job, yeah. who's able to study on their own, who's a self-starter, who has initiative. Okay. And it, it just, you know, it helps with the selection process. So I wanted a book that you know you would like read and train on this and then it turned out that um you know i started hearing from agencies where the the foundations of sniper uh marksmanship book started becoming their team policy as far as marksmanship training goes yeah one of the things i found interesting about it um, i haven't done a whole lot with uh like the bolt action rifle that I have, but I have a, I'm hoping to take a course this spring and just some of the stuff that it goes through. Um, it's like, if I had the book there with me and I'm actually got the scope there and I can reference these different points, I was like, man, this would like talking about MOAs and and measurements and um, all that. I was like, if I had this book when I was initially had the rifle out there, it would have explained it all for me. Like I, I didn't, it'd still be good to have a teacher, but like this book is a a teacher as well. 
So, and that's the point because the thing is, when you've only got a forty-hour program, mm-hmm. that really isn't the time for day one to be, gentlemen, figuring it ladies, out, ladies. This is the <laughs> rifle, you know. Awesome. You know, bullet comes out this end. Okay. Um, I do. We're just kind of coming up to the end of our time. I want to make sure you get a chance to say how people can follow you. Um, check out some of your books. Is it just check on Amazon? Put your name out there and um, find everything that you've written. I, and I'll, I'll I'll give you the links to share. But uh, basically, yeah. um, you want to look for Foundations of Sniper Marksmanship, mm-hmm. and um, as a uh, uh, basically as a bonus for your listeners, um, I got a. Uh, I got a discount code that you can use on the Blue 360 Media uh, website. Okay. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the link to that. Yeah. But uh, it, so it's a 20% discount code off of the uh, ebook version um, uh, direct from the publisher. Okay. So um, definitely send the links for the books and yep. any codes. And um, yeah, find you on LinkedIn. Any other social media that you're using right now? No, that's it. That's the main one. Okay. Um, and um, for anybody that's interested, uh, the other book I have is strictly for uh, police and military. Mm-hmm. It's called Sniper Notebook. It's not available anywhere else but from me. We're going to wrap up the recording. Stay on the line for, uh, so I can yeah. buy offline. But I want to say thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll look to have you on again in the future, um, probably around the Remembrance Day episodes, as we were discussing before. So. Uh, and we'll look to have you on again. Hey, thanks for having me.